Caleb for leading us in that uh, wonderful music to our Lord who abolished death and brought life in immortality to light through the gospel. Well, good morning, Commission. It's always a great privilege to preach. It's a special privilege to preach to you because you are so well fed week after week by our pastors who labor so diligently and faithfully to bring us the Word of God every time we meet. Well, perhaps no portion of my Bible is as scribbled and mucked up as the book of Romans. This is the book that I want written on my heart. So I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, our focus is going to be on the first two verses. And the title for our message is A Fitting Response. A Fitting Response. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the written word of God. Well, my eldest son and I have recently been plowing through some missionary biographies. Eric Little in Tianjin, China, George Mueller in Bristol, UK, William Carey in Serampur, India, and lest you think that I am anti-American, we recently started a biography of Jim Elliott to the remote Indians of Ecuador. All of these are intensely devoted to God, devoted to knowing God and to making him known. You don't get a sense from reading their biographies that they were making sacrifices begrudgingly to God. They saw their lives as a reasonable response to what God had done for them. They did not think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. They understood that the kindness of God ought to lead them to repentance, ought to lead them to faith, and also faithful service, and it did. You see, Christianity is a responsive religion. Every other religion has man as the initiator of how to get to God. Christianity responds to what God has done 100% for us. And that's exactly what this text today is about. Our text will reveal to us the only fitting way to respond to the mercies of the gospel. Romans 12, 1 and 2 contain a heaven-approved response to the gospel by a life-shown mercy. Of course, all hear the gospel, right? But not all respond the same way. Think of the parable of the soils, one out of four. But to hear the gospel and to really understand it, you can only respond by bearing fruit of the gospel. In Romans 12:1, God tells us the most fitting response. Verse 2 tells us how we can respond this way. And the end of verse 2 tells us why we need to respond this way. So a very simple outline. Verse 1, what to do. Verse 2, how to do it. And end of verse 2, 
why we do it. So verse 1, what is the most fitting response to the gospel? Paul says it is complete consecration. The most fitting response to the gospel is a life of total consecration, a life of complete devotion, unmixed loyalty to the God of the gospel. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. And of course, you know that word, therefore, it's a strong conjunction. And Paul has already used it several times in the book of Romans to make logical connections. But most notably, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All religion of human attempt does not get you the good news of Romans 5.1 and Romans 8, 1. But the therefore in Romans 12, 1 is even more significant because it calls us to practical application. It drives the movement from the character of who we are positionally to the conduct of how we need to lead our lives daily. So if Paul left out the phrase, by the mercies of God, there in verse 1, he would still convey the sense that everything he has just said needs to issue in a transformed life. But Paul feels the urge, does he not, to summarize all the 11 glorious chapters of Romans by this phrase, the mercies of God. And the word translated mercy is actually not at all that common in the New Testament. It only occurs 10 times. And six of those times is used by Paul. But it is way more regular in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, happening as frequent as 80 times. And Romans 11 has all been about mercy, God's mercy to the Gentiles. Look at verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, Gentiles, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews... So these also now have been disobedient, referring to Jews, that because of the mercy shown to you, Gentiles, they also may now be shown mercy, the Jews. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. And don't miss the juxtaposition between disobedience and mercy. Disobedience does not merit mercy. It warrants judgment. And of course, the man who wrote this understood that. He understood it very well. If you remember 1 Timothy 1, 13, he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, but I was shown mercy. And it's worth observation that the word for mercy in Romans 11 is way more common, of course, in the New Testament, even though it's not the same word as what he says in Romans 12, 1. And actually, the two words are used alongside each other in portions of the Old Testament. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, there God says this about himself, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, that's our word for mercy in Romans 11, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion, that's our word for mercy in Romans 12. 
And so the very first occurrence of this word, compassion, in Scripture tells us that God's compassion can be exercised at His own freedom. And of course, you know Exodus 33, 6 to 7, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate, that's the word in Romans 12, and gracious, that's the word in Romans eleven thirty. slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. In His compassion, God withholds the judgment rightly deserved, and in His grace, He shows favor without merits. And he does so in accordance with his sovereign purposes. And it is precisely the revelation of God's sovereign compassions, his absolute freedom to harden and to save, and his unconditioned choice to pass over some while rescuing others. And Paul goes into a lot of detail in Romans 9, 10, and 11 about that. That revelation drives him to that doxology at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways are untraceable. Who has known the mind of the Lord or became His counselor? No one. Or who has ever given to God first that it should be paid back to Him? No one. So if anyone understood mercy, it was Paul as he's writing this, and he recognizes that for much of the Old Testament era, Gentiles by and large perished. And since the church began, by and large, Jews perished. So whether you're a Jew or Gentile, you need to bow down and give glory to God for His mercy to you. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2, 4, God is rich in mercy. And 2 Corinthians 1, 3, he says he is the father of mercies. And one word captures this phrase, the mercies of God, and it is simply this. It's the gospel. And Paul calls it the gospel of God, Romans 1, 1. The gospel is the fountain head from which flows all the torrents of the mercies of God to sinners. But just to double-click on this, mercies briefly, Paul has used theologically significant terms in this letter to describe our salvation. He, he used words such as redemption, which is to be bought from the slave market of sin. Propitiation, which is the satisfaction of God's righteous judgment on the sin-bearer, Jesus. Justification, which is a declaration of a no-condemnation status for those who believe on the Son. And all of these terms describe God's mercies towards us. That's Romans 3 through 5. But also Paul spoke of believers as those freed from the tyranny of sin. He said, grace now reigns over us. We live in the realm of righteousness. We walk in newness of life. And all of these things capture God's present mercies towards us. That's Romans 6 and 7. And it only keeps getting better for the believer because our lives here on earth are as close to hell as you and I will ever be. And you better believe that if heaven is your final destination. Paul said the believer will be glorified. I mean, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And when Paul says nothing, he means, means nothing, not even death. That speaks of God's future 
mercies towards us. That's Romans 8. So hear the full weight of this text. I urge you by the mercies of God. And whenever Paul uses the verb to urge or to appeal with the preposition by or through, the object of the preposition functions as the subject of the appeal. Let me explain what I mean. If you were to turn very briefly to Romans 15, Paul uses similar phraseology. Romans 15 verse 30. Paul says that now, brethren, by our Lord Jesus, and by or through, by the love of the Spirit. So the essence there is, it is the two persons of the Trinity who are impelling you and compelling you to action. And the same phraseology happens in 2 Corinthians 10.1, but we don't need to turn there. So in Romans 12.1, Paul is essentially saying, I exhort you. But I am simply a mediator. It is really the mercies of God that are propelling you to action. The mercies of God are not like an aging coach who gives instructions to the youngsters to train and to practice while he's just watching from a distance. No, the mercies of God are like the swim coach who, as you're doing your strokes, he is literally walking on the side of the pool identifying weaknesses and giving you tips and tricks to improve. Even better, the mercies of God are the, 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 the ocean, the, the wave that carries you to the shore by the mercies of God. What is the exhortation? To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And the plural noun, your bodies, can refer to our physical bodies, but I think here Paul refers to our entire persons. Of course, not disregarding the physical. He used the same word in Philippians 1.20, I want Christ to be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Surely he means I want to honor Christ by my life, not just my physical body. So in the words of Jesus, you should see your bodies in Romans 12.1 as a reference to all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. It is a fitting response to give all of us to God because God gave all of himself to us. He did not withhold his own son, but he graciously delivered him up over for us all. Amazing. There no go zones in the life of a believer. There cannot be areas where you don't get to touch this, Lord. There cannot be. And the verb to present or to offer has priestly connotations. Two words are very regular in Leviticus to describe the priest's constant work. One is to bring the animal near. The other is to offer the animal. And the word he uses here is for that, and it's used even of Aaron's work. When Aaron would bring the two goats, one for the sin offering, and the other as the scapegoat before he would go into Azazel, Aaron would offer that. But of course, you don't take the analogy too far. We don't offer something else on the altar and run off into the wilderness to do whatever we want. No, we bring ourselves on the altar and we stay there. 
Paul has already used this verb several times in Romans 6, this verb to present. He says, Romans 6, 13, do not present, same word, your members to sin, instruments for unrighteousness, but present, same word, yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And again in Romans 6:19, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. We are in the business of constantly offering ourselves up to God. And the tense that he uses communicates the idea that from a helicopter view, if you were to take a macro Scopic view of your life from A to Z, or Z as you say it here in America, <laughs> if you had to present your life to God that way, one word would be fitting, a sacrifice. This is the summary of the imperative. Present your bodies a sacrifice. And notice the shift from bodies, plural, to sacrifice, singular. Paul had body life in mind here. The Christian life is lived within the context of a Christian community. There are no lone ranger Christians. The moment you detach yourself from the body, the moment you begin a life that does not present itself to God, we collectively, with our bodies, with ourselves, together, we bring sacrifice to God. And of course, that same word is used, sacrifice, time and time again in Leviticus. And the very first time it occurs is in Genesis 4-3 with uh, Abel and uh, Cain. When they brought their sacrifices to God, and if you remember, Cain was upset because Abel sacrificed. And we will see the word in 12-1, a sacrifice that is acceptable. And I think the reason Paul uses sacrifice is because he wants to drive it within us that the Christian life is costly. I mean, this was the message of Jesus time and again. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. I mean, excellent doctrinal exhortation for the first 11 books. And how does Paul describe the Christian's response? Sacrifice. It's amazing. Of course, you may come as you are, but you cannot leave as you are. You let go of your sin. You, you, you must let your life become an offering to God. Christianity is absolutely free grace, but it is not cheap grace. Look back at verse 1. He uses three adjectives to describe this sacrifice. First, he says the sacrifice is living because God doesn't require our gold. He requires us. He owns cattle on a thousand hills. He does not need your gold. He wants you. We must be living because we are not suicide bombers. None of that pleases God. No, as we live, we die 
Dying is living and living is dying for the Christian. And listen to what he says in Romans 6. He says, we no longer live in sin, Romans 6.2. In Romans 6.4, we walk in newness of life, Romans 6.11. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Second, the sacrifice must be holy. Like Old Testament sacrifices, the believer must be blameless in conduct. God must accept sacrifices in the Old Testament. And he is not about to change his mind in the new. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, that we do not celebrate the feast with the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Believer must be set apart. He told us earlier in Romans 6, 18, that we have become slaves of righteousness. And in Romans 6, 22, he said we are enslaved to God. I mean, if we were to examine just your interactions this morning with your spouse or with your kids, would this description be fitting, enslaved to God, a slave of righteousness? That's what Paul says is the only acceptable response to the gospel. And finally, the sacrifice must be acceptable to God. And that means well-pleasing. And she reminds you of all the Old Testament sacrifices that were offered, and there would be a fragrance that would go up, and the aroma would be well-pleasing, would be acceptable to the Lord. And Paul uses this very word later in Romans 14, verse 17. He says this, The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And whoever serves Christ this way is acceptable to God. And that presupposes that there are other ways to serve Christ that is not acceptable to God. Only when you serve in righteousness. You might object and say, well, if my life is to be so devoted to God, so in every way possible, how is that different from the religions of the world? which are tit for tat. I do this, God gives me that. How is this different? Do we begrudgingly pay God back for what he has done for us? Is that the Christian life? Well, listen to David Livingston, who was confronted with the same questions. And his client, people talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Away with such a word, such a view, and such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left the Father's throne on high to give himself for us. The glue that held Livingston's sacrificial missionary efforts in Africa, which was unknown, but he literally opened sub-Saharan Africa to the gospel. It was unknown to the world. The key that, that held all of that together to be bombarded with sickness and ailments was his constant contemplation of the past, 
present and future mercies of God. If you reverse it, if you try to do the Christian life outside of attending the God, you will literally die in the tsunamis of the imperatives in the New Testament. You cannot live the Christian life unless you've been transformed by who God is and the mercies he shows you in the gospel. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, this is your spiritual service of worship. And the word that's translated spiritual, again, is uncommon in the New Testament. And one other time in 1 Peter 2.2. In 1 Peter 2.2, Peter says this, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. The, the word, word there is spiritual here in Romans 12.1. And it really means that which is carefully thought through. And it anticipates what Paul is going to say in the next verse. The Christian life does not bypass the mind. It is a serious contemplation in the mind of what God has done. And the only logical conclusion, the only rational response is to offer yourself to him. And the phrase service of worship is really only one word. And can be translated as either service or worship. But you can tell the translators are trying all they can to to capture the, the significance of this by using both words. Romans 1.25, Paul says the depraved Gentiles worshipped and served. The word served is the word we have here in, in Romans 12.2 as two words, service of worship. So a life of worship or service that Paul speaks of in Romans 12 is logical. It is rational. It makes sense to a renewed mind. True worship issues from a life that's been transformed by the mercies of God. And we often speak of Sunday morning service, and that's good and well. But that's just a culmination of a week of worshiping God. If what you do on a Sunday morning does not reflect what you've been doing all of your week, then it's hypocrisy. Worship is how you respond on a Monday morning to that colleague who annoys you to bits. Or on Wednesday afternoon when your kids can barely obey a simple instruction. Or a Friday afternoon when you're on the five and you're stuck in traffic and these terrible L.A. drivers just keep cutting you off. (laughs) What do you do then? That's worship. It is not only in this mountain or in Jerusalem that you will worship the Father. For the Father seeks true worshipers who will worship Him in Spirit and truth. Spirit meaning with with all that you are, with all of your mind, all of your body, and all of your strength. And in truth, it's going to be worship that's informed by the Scripture. Francis Ridley, who died at 42, wrote this hymn five years prior, and I think it aptly summarizes what Paul tells us here. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. When the mercies of God have flown into my life, the only acceptable response is for my life to flow in praise to Him. 
And she continues, take my hands, take my feet, take my voice, take my lips, take it all, take all of me, she said. She understood. And may God help us to understand. What is the most fitting response to the gospel? Paul's answer in one is complete consecration, complete consecration. How can you respond this way? Paul's answer in verse 2 is complete change. You can respond this way by negatively separation and positively sanctification. Verse 2 is explanatory of verse 1, meaning what Paul says in verse 2 gives us the means to carry out the exhortation in verse 1. Look at it with me. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Two simple instructions. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. And both are passive verbs, meaning the believer is on the receiving end of both activities. One clearly negative, and the other clearly positive. To not be conformed speaks of separation. James said friendship with the world is enmity with God. Jesus said, you are in the world, but are not, are not of it. And the word, it's amazing, it occurs here, the word to not be conformed, and one other time in First Peter 1.14, Peter says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed, same word, to the former lusts which were yours in your experience, not parents, leads to eternal destruction. And the passive sense of the imperative in Romans and in Peter convey the nuance that you should not let yourself be influenced by the world. Don't be patterned. Don't be molded. Don't be shaped in your thinking by the world. And it is not because you continue to resist and resist and resist and resist all of your life. And of course, you're familiar with Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed. Different word, though, but similar, in that it communicates similarity of form and nature and appearance. The Father has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. And you cannot conform to the Son while conforming to the world. The two cannot coexist. And when Paul speaks of this world, or more rightly, this age, he refers to the old realm in which sin dominates, death reigns, and Satan is Lord. He tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, all that makes the world tick, right? Sin, disobedience, rebellion, lust, the flesh. But we've been delivered from that. Galatians 1, 4, Christ gave himself up to deliver us from this present evil age. Same word, world. So it is a challenge. The challenge for us in this age is to live like you've been delivered from it. And it is hard business not to be conformed to this world but it must be done. A gentleman in this room, if I did, he would get me fired from the seminary. He has the powers to do so. Bought a few of us tickets to 
the Staples Center, I think now it's called Crypto.com. We went there to watch a Lakers game. It was the loudest experience I've ever had. Uh, <laughs> a few of us were there, and it, uh, we, we enjoyed watching the game, but really fellowshipping. And after the game, there were about 19,000 people all trying to cram out and leave the place. I mean, it's just you could barely feel your feet moving because everyone is pushing you out. Now, imagine if I stood still. Do you think I would succeed? Absolutely not. The current, the traffic, the floor is going to push me one way. It'll be challenging to try and stay in one position. But imagine if I try to walk the opposite direction. That'll be nigh impossible. So fighting is that challenging because conformity is the way of the world. And if you follow the world, then you won't be able to distinguish between male and female. It's that bad. So don't follow the world. So Paul warns us, we cannot let ourselves be influenced by it. And Jesus tells us, Matthew 5, don't lose your salt by participating in their sins. You won't be able to call them out when you are living and thinking like them. So don't be conformed. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And that speaks of the positive side of what he has just said negatively. That's sanctification. And the passive sense of that imperative to be transformed emphasizes that this work of mind renewal is ultimately produced by another. It's not something that we ourselves do. And we can confirm that it is the Spirit because the noun renewing occurs one other time in the New Testament. And it is Titus 3.5. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who does the work. It is the Holy Spirit who transforms and renews our mind. And of course, Paul goes into detail in Romans 8 of what the mindset and the flesh is. He says it is hostile to God. It is at enmity with God. It cannot please God. And Romans 1.28, he calls it a depraved mind. And the mind is the soul's trade center. The mind is where you evaluate decisions and where you really live your life in the mind. As you think, so you are. And of course, Paul even says this, have this mind in yourself. Or, or think this way, or have this attitude in yourself, Philippians 2.5, which was also in Christ Jesus. And of course, there he goes into detail about what Christ has done, right? He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. So you are never more like your Savior than when you put other people's interests ahead of And of course, he goes into detail in the rest of Romans 12. What is Romans 12 all about? Gifts, saving one another in the local church. The radio program, Renewing Your Mind. How many of you know that? Renewing Your Mind by R.C. Sproul, incredible defender of the truth. Went home to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. And what most of you don't know about was he worked or didn't work, had an opportunity to inherit an accounting firm that was started by his grandfather. All R.C. had to do was to take the CPA exams, and he was headed for the presidency in that firm. 
But Arsi gets saved his freshman year in college. He hears the gospel, and he cannot help it. He wants to devote his life to studying the truth. And he graduates. He tells his parents, no, I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be a CPA. I'm going to devote my life to studying of Scripture. And literally everyone in the firm, all all the professionals in the firm, they looked at R.C. and said, you must be nuts. Do you understand what you are giving up? And R.C. said, well, let me tell you. You don't understand the holiness of God. And therefore, you don't understand the mercies that have been shown to me. And R.C., if you know anything about R.C., all of his life, he emphasized the holiness of God. In fact, he said there is no other attribute of God in Scripture that is raised to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. And when you understand God's holiness, you cannot help it but be astounded by His mercies. Be transformed by the renewing of the verbal instruction. So really, Paul describes it. The end of it is in Philippians 3.21. Philippians 3.21. You don't have to tend there. I'll just read it for us. Paul says this. He will transform, which is not the same word, but very similar to the word conform in Romans 12 too. The body of our humble state into conformity, very similar to the word transform in Romans 12 too, with the body of his glory. Yes, we must sacrifice ourselves to God in living for him daily. But when you understand the glory that's coming, You cannot call it a sacrifice. Do you call leaving your sin and baggage behind a sacrifice? No, it's not. It's a grateful response to what God has done. And one day, this body will be transformed itself, and we will have a new body. No longer to struggle with sinuses, or you'll never need to blow your nose ever again. It's amazing. But more than that, you will be sinless. You will never need to go to your spouse and say, please forgive me. I'm sorry. You know how painful that is? But you'll never need to do it. So complete consecration, complete change negatively by separation, positively by sanctification. Why do we need to respond this way? End of verse 2. The end result, Paul calls it complete Cherishing of the will of God. Complete cherishing of the will of God. He says, to prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. To prove the will of God has the idea of, after careful examination, to, to prove it, to ascend to it, to accept it, to embrace it. And your mind is to change before you can do that. Because the will of God it's impossible to embrace. We cannot do it. And I think when he says to prove the will of God, it moves beyond just mental comprehension to a changed lifestyle. You have not proved the will of God unless your life issues in obedience. Imagine I tell my son after he's done something wrong, go to the room and wait for me. And he doesn't. He is unhappy, he's upset, and I give him the look from dad, and eventually he does go, but he is begrudging, he's moaning. I mean, he's evaluated my will, he's assessed it, he's even obeyed, but he did not approve of it. To prove the will of God is to love the will of God. 
to love it. And that's why he says that which is good, purity, holy. And the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Same word. Objectively, it's good. But you need a renewed mind to subjectively say this is good. And the will of God is that which is acceptable or well-pleasing. Of course, his commandments are not burdensome, but they are to you in your fleshly mind. So he needs to transform you so you can embrace the will of God as pleasing to you. The will of God is perfect. It is not deficient. It is sufficient for you. Even when life is hard and you cannot discern his secret will, you embrace his revealed will as that which is good. It is enough for me. The will of God, you get to that point of cherishing it when you are completely consecrated to God, when you are completely changed. And this process of change is going to come to full fruition at the end of time. And you begin to cherish it. Eric Little died in age 43 in Winston internment camp during the World War II. If you know anything about Eric Little, he was an Olympic champion. He knew everything about leaving it all on the field. Uh, he wins his medal, and not long after, he heads to China to be a missionary. And again, all the newspapers cannot understand it. No one can. This is the flying Scotsman. Why is he going to China? But he goes there to... And it's it worse. He has a stroke, has a tumor on the left side of his brain. And as he draws his final breath, he says to one of his colleagues... Annie Buchan, I think, was her name. She says, Annie, it is a surrender. It is a surrender. Now, I wonder if the Lord calls you home today. Would you, with a clear conscience, say, Lord, I've lived my life in such a way that approximates the mercies you've shown me in the gospel? Yes, we talk about justification, and we must. But, oh, that our lives would be sanctified as an appropriate response to the gospel. It is a surrender. So I'll leave you with the words of Paul as the musicians come and do a verse or two for us. Paul says this, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we thank you for your truth. We can never exhaust it. We just feel like children playing at the beach, but we thank you that you are so kind and gracious to us. Transform us, we ask, for your name's sake. Amen.